Welcome to Life Beat, Right to Life of Michigan's bi-weekly podcast going in-depth on pro-life news and issues. I'm your host, Chris Gast, RLM's Director of Communication and Education. Happy Friday, everybody. We don't really have a feature today. We're going to talk a little bit about conference uh, involving one story. We'll talk about two other stories. Um, so let's just jump right in and get into those. On Wednesday, the U.S. House Select Panel on Infant Lives voted to hold Kate Dyer, CEO of STEM Express, in contempt. Uh, so what does contempt of Congress mean? Well, uh, it means you didn't uh, cooperate with a subpoena in this case. Kate Dyer and STEM Express have not provided information to the House Panel on Select Panel on Infant Lives regarding their trade of human body parts, specifically body parts of aborted babies. Contempt of Congress is a serious thing. It can involve fines. It can involve jail. Um, what happens is the panel is voted. It'll be referred to the entire House. Well, they will consider having a vote. Uh, if you look at the history of contempt of Congress charges, often the people held in contempt by a panel or committee will reach some sort of agreement and turn over the information. Sometimes that's not the case. There have been people who have gone to jail and been fined uh, in history. I was looking it up, and an EPA official in 1983 was indicted for lying to Congress, held in contempt. Um, So I'm not sure what's going to happen with Kate Dyer. I'm going to bet nothing, and that's because if the entire House of Representatives were to hold a vote uh, and hold her in contempt of Congress for refusing to participate in their hearings and answering their subpoena, they're going to refer it to the Justice Department. Who runs the Justice Department? Well, the Justice Department is uh, basically run by the President Barack Obama, who does campaign events for Planned Parenthood, and who at the National Convention uh, for the Democrats, Planned Parenthood was a featured speaker. Obviously, was working with STEM Express to sell these aborted babies' body parts. So I strongly doubt, and that's unfortunate, that's what really gets me is our justice system ought to be able to look at this from a neutral perspective, but that's just not the case. If you look what happened with Lois Lerner, who was held in contempt of Congress for refusing to testify about the IRS treating applications by groups that had a legitimate right to get these applications to engage in uh, education, advocacy, whatnot. Um, The IRS purposefully targeted them, and uh, Lois Lerner knew that was going on, um, basically using the uh, IRS as a weapon, a political weapon. And unfortunately, her political allies were there to cover for her. And so I'm going to predict that's what we'll see in the case of STEM Express and Kate Dyer. But, uh, you know, we'll see. Next story I wanted to cover before we get to a conference was uh, Donald Trump called for permanently banning taxpayer funding of abortions. The Hyde Amendment is what currently bans direct taxpayer funding of abortions. Of course, we know with funding of Planned Parenthood, 
Uh, it's an indirect way to fund abortions. But the Hyde Amendment for many decades has prevented direct taxpayer funding of abortions. It used to prevent funding of all abortions. Um, it was changed in the 1990s at the behest of President Bill Clinton. Uh, they were able to get through a, a change where abortions for cases of rape and incest could now be paid for through tax dollars directly. It's passed every year, and uh, thankfully every year it's gone through. Uh, that doesn't mean that's always going to happen. All it takes is one year, Congress or the President deciding they don't want to renew the Hyde Amendment, and then taxpayer dollars will basically be automatically directly funding abortions. And so what we need to do is make it a permanent law, a permanent ban on tax funding of abortions. So President Trump, a President Trump has said that he would make that a priority. He said this uh, amongst a couple other things. He recently released an additional list of more justices he might consider for the U.S. Supreme Court. So that's very encouraging. On the other hand, uh, President Hillary Clinton has promised that she will repeal the Hyde Amendment requiring taxpayer funding of abortions. Of course, that means you and I will be forced to pay for abortions. You know, that's morally wrong because we believe in our conscience very deeply that these are human lives of value, that we should not be forced to end those lives against our will. But that is unfortunately what Hillary Clinton believes. And... She doesn't even necessarily need to do that through the courts. I mean, excuse me, through a legislature. She could do that through the courts. If she can get one more Supreme Court justice, she and Congress might not be able to agree, but the court, 5-4, to four, can simply rule, or 6-3, to three, uh, could simply rule that, well, the Hyde Amendment is now unconstitutional. It was actually one of the earlier uh, court cases. The Supreme Court actually found that the Hyde Amendment was constitutional, uh, thankfully, but that doesn't mean that's necessarily always going to be the case. And I honestly don't think that four of those justices right now would vote to say that the Hyde Amendment is constitutional. Even though the Constitution doesn't mention anything about requiring funding of abortions. It's funny how that works, isn't it? The last story I wanted to talk about fits in nicely with conference. Uh, it's Dr. Prescribed Suicide. One of our conference speakers, the main speaker there, was Wesley J. Smith, a noted bioethicist, lawyer, uh, advocate for patients' rights, um, advocates for other rights. He used to write books uh, for consumer safety uh, with Ralph Nader. Uh, he's been a lot of different places wearing a lot of different hats. But he first got involved in uh, life issues, the value of human life, um, his most One of his more recent books was called The War on Humans. Uh, he all got involved when his friend committed suicide under the influence of pro-suicide literature from the Hemlock Society, now known as uh, Compassion and Choices. A little misleadingly there. He had a couple very important things to say about uh, Dr. Prescribed Suicide and Euthanasia, specifically how it involves the court. But uh, before I go into that, quickly just give a recap of conference. went very well. We had 250 people there, uh, just about. Wesley J. Smith was our main speaker. We had five excellent workshops, uh, including talking with students, uh, how to connect, sort of bridge the generational gap between millennials and older professional 
pro-lifers and volunteers. Had another great workshop on getting churches involved. Another one on post-abortive effects, not just on women, but men, and also family members. Had another one on how to hold a Black History Month presentation. Every year for Black History Month, we hold panel discussions, uh, mostly in the Detroit area, the east side of the state. Kathy Crombie, our director of multicultural outreach, explained how to bring those presentations to your area for our affiliates in other parts of the state. Also had another workshop on fundraising. No one loves fundraising, but it's obviously so critical to getting anything done. So we had five great workshops. We had a wonderful closing session uh, featured talking about the election, things that we can do, ways that you can have an impact. Uh, featured a couple affiliate leaders and ways that they've made an impact. Congressman Tim Wahlberg's wife, Sue, came and addressed us. She talked about the importance of a vote and how it can make a big impact. That's certainly true. All in all, it was a very wonderful day. It's always good to visit with our affiliates. We at Right to Life in Michigan believe our affiliates are our strength. Our grassroots are truly the best in Michigan. We believe we'll stack them up against anyone else. And so con- conference is always such a wonderful time to get some little additional training, uh, some time together on a face-to-face personal basis. And so I would encourage you to come next year. It's always in September. Uh, usually it's in Lansing. We talked about moving it somewhere else in the state. Hopefully you can join us next year, find out ways that you can get more involved. Well, Wesley always gives a wonderful speech, uh, not necessarily because of his topic. His topic is usually not very comfortable. He joked at the beginning that when he talks before people eat lunch, he usually ruins their appetite. And when he talks after people have had lunch, he usually ruins their meal for them. Um, But what he talks about is always very important. And yesterday he talked about doctor-prescribed suicide, uh, euthanasia, and how it's moved through the courts. He started off with the Netherlands, where it all began. It all began with a court case in 1973, just same time, around the same time as Roe v. Wade. The Netherlands decriminalized suicide, uh, euthanasia there. Um, what they didn't do is go through their legal process and affirmatively make it legal, but what they did is a court decision that said, well, we just won't prosecute you if you encourage your patients to commit suicide. From that single court case, we've gotten to where we are now, where euthanasia is legal in the Netherlands and Belgium. It's being slowly legalized in the United States, state by state. Although, obviously, as we've talked about in past weeks, they haven't been very successful yet in many states. Washington, Oregon, uh, California, Vermont, and that's it. And they've had many, many, many defeats. But they keep trying And they can fail 20 times, but if they succeed one time, then they've succeeded. And their goal is, as Wesley said, to get enough states to where the Supreme Court can feel comfortable imposing legalized euthanasia and doctor-prescribed suicide on the country. As it stands right now, I think it'd be a fair guess to say there are four votes in favor of imposing euthanasia. But, uh, as Wesley pointed out, uh, 
they might have learned their lesson from Roe v. Wade that even if they have the votes to do it, they might not necessarily just start doing it. Obviously, it causes a backlash when courts dictate such large changes on people. Of course, that didn't stop them with abortion, but after 43 years of backlash and turning the court and court appointments into a political minefield, they hopefully have learned their lesson. Obviously, looking at the last few years in court cases, I'm not sure if that is a safe bet. Obviously, we can avoid that completely if we vote for candidates who appoint pro-life justices and we have a Supreme Court that respects the rule of law. They don't even need to be rabid, hardcore pro-lifers. They just need to respect the rule of law because obviously euthanasia shows up nowhere in the Constitution. Doctor uh, prescribed suicide doesn't show up anywhere in the Constitution. Back in the 90s, uh, the Supreme Court ruled in two cases, 9-0, to zero, that euthanasia, doctor prescribed suicide, they didn't show up in the Constitution. But, even though those were 9-0 decisions, I think, off the top of my head, four of the people who signed on to that decision also had concurring opinions where they were like, well, you know, we can always re-examine this in the future. Basically signaling how many votes are there for imposing it, but they need to have the groundwork laid first. In that case, they did need another justice or two to make that happen. Uh, now, it's probably the same. It's true. Uh, just replacing Scalia with a justice who does not respect the sanctity of human life and they can probably do that, but uh, Wesley J. Smith predicted they probably need maybe 20 states or so uh, to legalize it before they can make the 30 other states follow behind. One important point that uh, Smith talked about that I want to finish with was the vastly different view of society that, say, judicial elites might have compared to us as pro-lifers and how that plays out in these court decisions. We believe that, as pro-lifers, that one of the goals, if not the preeminent goal, of society, of our government, is to protect human life in all of its forms, from womb to tomb, as you might say. Whereas the other worldview, one that is increasingly held by many elite institutions, uh, and I don't mean that necessarily as a pejorative elite, but just influence makers, people in power, people in the heights of culture, our legal universities, in all forms of government, in all forms of bureaucracy, they do not believe that the sanctity of human life is one of the most or the most important points of society, goals of society, ends of society. Instead, they believe that preventing suffering is the preeminent goal of society. Not protecting human life, but to get rid of suffering. And it is kind of ironic, as he pointed out, and I've pointed out too, at no point in time in history have we been more able to prevent suffering, either from an economic sense, uh, from physical pain in, in medicine, the advances in pain control. You know, a hundred years ago we didn't have that, and you would likely die in agony of some chronic health disease. You don't have to really have that anymore, except now 
we're pushing euthanasia, now we're pushing doctor-prescribed suicide. And that's because eliminating suffering has become kind of the ethos, the most important uh, thing that we live by, our philosophy as a society and culture. And so as long as we do that, it becomes very easy to eliminate the sufferer in order to eliminate the suffering, as Wesley put it. And so we'll see what happens with the presidential election. will obviously have a big impact on the court. Wesley's takeaway message was that it can happen here in the United States, but it doesn't have to. It happened in Canada. They had a Supreme Court that ruled in favor of euthanasia, imposed it on all of society there. We could have the same happen here. It's very easy to see that happening, but it's also easy if we do our job as pro-life advocates to prevent that from happening, if we can stop it coming from all the states, including Michigan, where there is a bill right now to legalize doctor-prescribed suicide in the state. Obviously, that bill has no chance of succeeding today. Tomorrow is always another story. So let's hopefully write a happy pro-life ending to that story and many others. Okay, that's all we have for this edition of LifeBeat. Join us again in two weeks. We'll be in the middle of the election season, and so we'll focus on that, talk a little bit more about where the candidates are. By that time, we'll have already had our first debate. I know that seems a little bit early, but we'll make sure to provide a recap of that. Hopefully, pro-life issues get brought up in the debate. We can hear directly from Clinton and Trump what they have to say. Thanks for joining us, and have a wonderful weekend.